This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook is all about building towards a greater tomorrow. So I asked design program manager Marcy Quintana where she sees Facebook going into the future. I think Facebook is really poised to change the world. It already has in so many ways. And I think the people that work here really believe in the impact and the potential impact we can have on the world for the better. And so, I, I mean, gosh, I just, I just think the sky's the limit. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Buffer is looking for an Android developer. And it's a remote position so you can work from anywhere in the world. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you can get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for even more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again, we're having our first live event. It's going to be taking place next week. Revision Path Live with Facebook Design is going to be here in Atlanta on November the 7th at 6.30 p.m. We'll have some product designers from Facebook, including former guests Tori Hargrove and Carla Cole. Now, this is a special ticketed event, so if you want to attend, send us an email at revisionpathlive at fb.com, and we'll take it from there. Again, that's Revision Path Live, all one word, at fb.com. I'll also put this email down in the show notes. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. You know, automation is huge right now, and the best thing about MailChimp is how they use automations to help make sure that your email marketing efforts are more powerful. You can set up automations to reward the most active people on your list if you're sending out newsletters. You can also send order notifications and follow up on purchases if you're doing e-commerce. And now you can even do retargeting so you can sort of follow where your customers are going from site to site and target them there. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Your online identity really begins with your domain name. You know, no matter what kind of an artist or a designer or developer or creative person you are, showcasing your passion online is super important. Now, we're not really talking about what kind of website you use, but rather what the domain is. I'm pretty sure even if you have something that's like a Wix site or a WordPress.com site, you don't necessarily want to give that out. You want to give out something that's more professional, something that really says who you are. And Hover makes the process of finding a domain super simple. They've got hundreds of domain extensions, they've got personalized email, and award-winning customer service. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. 
They let you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple options that your websites can grow into. Of course, Revision Path is on SiteGround, and all plans on SiteGround have managed WordPress hosting, including staging and Git integration. So get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash Revision Path so you can get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Timothy Bardlevins, UX designer and culture lead at Microsoft in Redmond, Washington. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Timothy Bard Levins, and I am a both a UXer at Microsoft as well as, I would say, a culture lead. Now, I want to talk about this culture lead part because I think that's really interesting. Can you go into that a little bit more? So when I was hired at Microsoft, the first slide in my presentation during my interview process was, I'm the black guy. And so what I did was I explained what does blackness mean to me? Why am I un- unapologetically black? And how does it experience my, um, in- well, influence my work? Mm-hmm. And I talked about how important diversity and inclusion was. And, and so when I was finally, when I was hired on, that became a part of my work. It was basically me taking a team, well, our entire organization and it was about 200 people or so. And basically one, creating a team, a culture team in a sense to, understand what is the culture of our organization and how do we create a structure around it where people feel included, people feel like they can come to work and be uniquely themselves. Because at the time, there's been this struggle between old Microsoft and new Microsoft. And old Microsoft was very much, not even microaggressions, just very aggressive, very hostile work environment. And so when Satya took over, he's tried to change the culture of Microsoft. And in doing so, there's been a recognition that, so if we want to push for diversity and inclusion in Microsoft or in any corporation, you have to facilitate that. And so, yes, you have to be intentional in your hiring practices, so on and so forth. But let's say you hire 50 black people, 1,200 Hispanic women, and 75, I don't know, Asian men or whatever. But if you don't have the culture or the environment set up in a way that people actually feel like they can come to work, not feel attacked, feel like they're included in the conversation, feel like they're treated as human beings, they'll ultimately will leave. And so that's kind of a lot, a lot of what my work is around is creating an environment where people feel included, where we're getting the pulse of the team, where we're understanding where are the problem areas and then how do we actually fix those problem areas so that people feel good again. And so that's like the very high level surface view of, of my work on the culture side. You know, I think that's really interesting, that dichotomy of old Microsoft versus new Microsoft, because I feel like that's even been reflected in the software, like on the consumer. And like, I've been a long time user of Windows, which if anybody's listening as a designer, I know they might be, you know, turning their nose up at that. But I've been using, I've been using Windows since 3.1. Okay. I've seen Windows through all of its iterations. And I feel like now it's certainly as a piece of software feels more refined and cohesive, but also feels like it's been a little more rounded along the edges. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I certainly get like this different feel from Microsoft as a company through the software. And it's interesting that you said that that culture fit has has kind of come through as well. It's interesting that you say that because that's a part of the change to new Microsoft is originally Microsoft was 
built by developers and program managers. And so it was built to be a utility originally. Yeah. So where Mac is the art, you know, there was the paintbrush. PC was Windows was the hammer. It was just the nail in that nail and get the job done. And so now with the influx of of design and you know, getting people really incorporated into that process and understanding the user experience and caring about it, you start to see like that difference in how things feel and you get the difference of, oh, well, man, this feels a little more cohesive or this is visually more beautiful than it used to be. Because if you look at, you know, Windows 98 and now Windows 10, it's like, whoa, that's yeah. totally different. Or, you know, XP versus now, or, you know, of course, Windows 8 is the the dark time of the company. But coming out of that into 10, you see where we're starting to care more and more about the user experience, about the design and the aesthetics and how things actually feel as opposed to just how they function. Now, I'm curious to, about this. And I don't know if it's something that you know or can speak to, but I thought it's, it's interesting that, you know, Microsoft kind of skipped any sort of nine in their versioning number. Like they went from eight to 10. And I feel like maybe that was because they had Windows 95, Windows 98. And so they didn't want to try to replicate that. But then also, you know, if you look at Apple, they went from like, iPhone 8 to iPhone X. Like, why did they skip the right. nine? Do you know if there's a reason that Microsoft kind of skipped over version numbers like that? I'm just curious to know if you know that. Yeah. I feel like there's history behind there, and I've heard people chatter about it, but I've, I don't know myself. But maybe from what I've heard, they felt a lot of people felt like Windows 8 was so bad, they just went ahead and skipped up to Windows 10 so that we could forget about Windows 8 even quicker. But <laughs> that's, I think that was just people being, you know, I kind of remember Windows 8 (laughs) not being that bad. I don't know. Maybe I'm just from the the consumer end. Now, Windows and me, that was trash. Windows and me was, (laughs) oh, I went to, I went back to Mac for a little bit after Windows and me. That was, that was something else. But, but with the stuff that you're doing at Microsoft, I find it's, it's really good that it's, it's not just about quote unquote diversity. Cause I think when a lot of companies, particularly tech companies are talking about diversity, it's always from the recruitment and the hiring in, but the work that you're doing as a culture lead is more about fostering inclusion internally, making sure that once you get those people in the door, they realize, you know what, Microsoft is a really great place to work. Like, I think that is, is super important to foster that level of, of inclusion, because once you get them in the door, what are you going to do to make them stay? Right. And I spoke at a conference this past May, and that was the exact message that I gave was around, it's more than diversity and inclusion, it's culture. And if you get the culture right, then it feels like it feels so much better. It feels like you're at home. And so if you're spending more time at work than you do at home, then you realize that you want something that's going to really feel good. Like you don't want to have to separate home and work so much that you almost feel like two different people and you have to have, you know, two different personalities. And so that's, you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of my friends, they hear some of the things I say in Outside of work, I'm like, yeah, I'm the exact same person at work. I say the same thing. <laughs> Sometimes it may be a little, it was always off color, maybe a little racist. It's fine. But it's meant to, actually, my manager said it best. He was like, Tim, you go that mile to let people know it's okay to go an inch. And so mm. that's kind of the role I've taken on is saying that I'm going to be this unapologetically black guy who says that I was hired because of affirmative action and just so that people can to laugh and giggle and say, you know, it's okay to talk about race. It's okay to talk about politics at work and all these other things that you're told never to talk about because 
they're a part of my life. They're a part of my experience. I bring these to work every day and they really do shape how I work and the products that we create for out for people. So I try to make that as important as possible to just be open and honest with folks and just try to create this area, this bubble around me of anything can go and don't get offended. Just be ready to push back. And if I do offend you, then let's have a conversation about it. And so have being able to help people foster conversations and want to do the work and want to really be inspired by connecting the beauty of culture and innovation and how those things go hand in hand and just lighting up those light bulbs for people is really inspiring and interesting when you start to see the impact of it. So in a sense, I'm designing culture or I'm designing the user experience. But for me, my user is, you know, are my colleagues or my managers or my VPs and executives and whatnot. You need to trademark that phrase. (laughs) Going the mile to let people know they can, they can take an inch. Like that's, that's powerful. I spoke to Areem Anthony. He's a, a production design manager at Airbnb back in March. For people that are listening, that's episode 181. And it struck me that, you know, when he was talking about working at Airbnb, he said very much kind of the same things you are. He's like, I'm the same person outside of work that I'm inside of work. And he like really gushed about how well the culture is there. Are there challenges with communicating that to potential employees? Yes, but it's the challenge of of intentionality. It's um because we go to the same arenas to get candidates to even come to work for Microsoft, that means we it becomes a little bit of a homogeny. You know, if you can say like people of Asian descent are minority in most of America, but in Microsoft they are the majority outside of white people. Mm-hmm. And so like if you're going to an MIT or Yale or Harvard, you're typically always going to find those types of people. And so it's hard to communicate that, yeah, Microsoft can be really open and far more diverse because we're looking in the same arenas to get people. And so that's a part of some work that my counterparts in culture are doing and other teams are going out and traveling around the country, going to HBCUs and even going to emerging markets in Africa to bring people back who you know have the skill sets to be able to do great work that don't, there aren't just from India or from, you know, China or areas like that or aren't just from these PWIs where you get the, a lot of the same people. Yeah. So it's a challenge to communicate it from the stance of we still have a lot to go as far as being intentional on the folks that we, we seek out and hire. What do you think makes a good Microsoft employee? Technical skill aside, we'll say that. I would just, I would say someone who has experienced just has experienced the frustrations of using products, of using technology, has had like a, an, an issue with something, um, and is a, or they have a friend or a family member who has an issue with something, and it impacts how they see the world and how they navigate, like in our case, through technology. Mm-hmm. So I met Maurice Woods. He spoke at Facebook. Uh, we hosted him last week or a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and his sister, she has a visual impairment. And so she just finished design school. Um, and so she actually created some interesting, she was explaining, she created some interesting overlay on the website so that people who are visually impaired, they can read the um, screen much better. And, but you can't actually see it unless you put in a specific type of code. You did a specific type of action. And so it was like just some thing that you wouldn't know is there unless you, you needed it. And so like people like her who 
she's fresh out of design school, but she has this really interesting perspective of like, I see the world totally different than my design counterparts who are perfectly able to do their work in every way, you know, so that that difference in, in perspective is amazing because that's the kind of stuff that we need to do more. Like we have folks who work specifically on accessibility. Mm -hmm. We have folks who like, in, but and that's great, but you know, some of the folks who work specifically on accessibility are more, may more so be following the rules of it and making sure they're fitting into like legal guidelines as opposed to, I have personal experience with this. I know how it should go or how it should feel. Yeah. And so I think that's the biggest thing is just having an interesting perspective and being able being open and honest about it in a way that you're willing to share it. And if you can do that, then it makes it so much easier because it's hard. Like, in fact, a good example is I sent out an email from the culture team to the rest of the organization and I had text on an image and I got a response back saying, hey, just so you remember this from next, always use alt text so that we can so that everyone can read your emails. And I hadn't thought about it. Now, mind you, I'd worked in marketing before. And so I knew to use alt text in that sense. I've you know built websites. And so I knew to use alt text in that sense. But just sending an email about culture to our organization, I completely forgot about that. And I needed someone's other perspective to remind me, don't forget about this group of people because they care about what you're sending out just as much as all of us other folks. Yeah. Man, he's doing some really great, great work. I know he has his, uh, his, I guess it's a nonprofit. I want to say it's a nonprofit, but he has the interact project that he does yeah. uh, where he teaches young kids. I think it's like ages like seven to 17. I might be getting that wrong, but he teaches young kids about design and getting into the design industry and brings in speakers and everything doing a lot of really great work. If people want to listen to his, his interview, he's episode 13 on the show. But no, that's great. I remember seeing the news about him speaking. I think it was at Facebook, right? At Facebook's office in Seattle about his work that he's doing with diversity. So that's really great. What is a typical day like for you? It sounds like it would be fun. <laughs> I'm guessing, but but please enlighten me if it's not. <laughs> Did you note my laugh? No, it's challenging because I fight battles on multiple ends. Of course, like so my, you know, my actual design work, it lies a lot in product innovation and especially around the browser. So specifically for those who have never used a Windows program, I work on the Edge browser. And so this is like this V, the next generation of Internet Explorer. And so that's an interesting challenge alone because it's a browser and you think, you know, I just need to search for stuff and that's it. But there's all kinds of stuff that goes in it. And there's partnerships that have to be made across multiple business teams and we have to nurture it and sometimes tell them no and tell them yes. And so being the partnership lead and working with those folks is interesting from a design standpoint. But then the culture side is multiple battles again because I have to fight down and up. So or manage down and up, I should say. So I'm managing my leaders and trying to explain to them this is these are organizational models and this is the unit, the individual and the and the system and how we impact these things using these models and the informal and formal organizational structures. And, you know, it sounds like super complicated. And I think it's stuff that I don't have training in is like things I've just had to learn and pick up. And part of it is stuff that I've picked up working on my thesis. And so it's like all kinds of stuff. But then there's also, you know, managing down where I have to explain to folks that culture is innovation. And they ask, well, I've never connected culture and innovation. I wouldn't even put those in the same realm. How's it like, what does that even mean? And I say, well, 
you want you the culture you want is to be able to be open and honest and to present ideas without getting shot down. You want to be able to make mistakes and fail and learn from those mistakes. That is by definition innovation. And so if you check the box on one, you check the box on the other. And so like explaining those things and getting people motivated and getting people to just be open to the possibility is a challenge too. So it's a lot of, of back and forth and ups and downs and interesting emails. And sometimes it's me typing an email and letting it sit for a few minutes or send it to somebody and say, can you read this and tell me if this is okay? And then getting it back and having to retype it again because I realized that I'm being passive aggressive. <laughs> so I try my best not to send out any per my last email type of responses, but it's fun in the sense that it is challenging in its own way. Per my last email, I love using that. <laughs> Only because I like to keep everything in, like I live out of my inbox. So I like to keep everything threaded and we've got the documentation. It's right here. And if you look back at what I said earlier, <laughs> but no, I, I get what you're saying. I would imagine, of course, as the culture lead, you have to, you have to go that extra step and not, right. you know, kind of come off in that way because you want to be approachable. Right. And let's be honest, being a black man, especially seen as one who I will, if I pat myself on the back, if being seen as a quote unquote powerful black man, you have to be approachable. Because I remember one of the first jobs I ever had as a host at Margaritaville, I was fired because the GM felt I was unapproachable. So I've learned to smile and laugh and to have a good time as best as possible and make other people laugh and make them feel good. Yeah. But at the same time, chopping them at the ankles if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel, I feel like if you're going to lead off in your bio as the black guy, you kind of have to go that extra mile, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back because I know you didn't you didn't start off in Seattle at Microsoft. You actually have had a, a pretty extensive uh, design journey, so to speak, to get from where you were from to where you are now. Let's go back to South Carolina. Talk to me about your time there. South Carolina, I mean, is everything you hear on the news. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> you know, it's actually, it's funny because moving to Seattle, I realized how bad certain things were that I just was used to, like whether it was comments or just all kinds of stuff. I was like, man, this is actually worse than I realized, like once I woke up. But South Carolina was interesting. You know, I went to, I mean, I didn't go to any prestigious school. I went to Coastal Carolina University, which is in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, actually technically Conway, but most people associate Myrtle Beach. So you think going to a beach school would be great. Nope. It's a one road town in a sense. And when it's not the summertime, you see the same six people. Mm. So I was a, I was a, I went to Coastal Carolina, got my BA in design. I worked as a designer in our student activities doing, like I basically created a position for myself. I was like, hey, so we need to get the word out to other students about all the events we're doing. Okay. I'll be the one to do that. And then I just, I kind of fell in love with it. Originally, I was an English major. I wanted to be a creative writer. I was like, you know, what? I want to be the next editor-in-chief of Jet Magazine. And so I'll take a design class because I know I need to learn how to do like layouts and stuff and look at that kind of stuff. And so I did that and I got bit by the design bug. And my junior year, I changed to design. And I would stay up three o'clock in the morning working on design work in, in the Office of Student Activities where I was work, like where I, they employed me as well. Like I somehow got them to pay me up to $10 or $11 an hour, 40 hours a week when I was only supposed to work 20 hours a week. So like I hustled the best way I could. And I, I created a lot of that part of my life to the folks who are now my godparents in a sense, my godmother, and my god aunt, mm -hmm. um, to start off as my supervisor. And I always created them because they're the ones who like Tim, 
you joke around a lot and we feel like that's a, a shield for something else. Like there's something else and you need to just learn to let people see you. And so they really kind of opened my eyes a little bit. And they were my parents in, in undergrad and those two women were amazing. I still keep in touch with them. I get cursed out if I don't call them for their birthday. <laughs> uh, and so that was undergrad. And then I actually, I went back home to um, Columbia after I left Myrtle Beach. And I actually got a job at a company called Jones School Supply. And it was a graphics administrator. It was a temporary job. And I was basically creating those ribbons for field day for um, elementary school kids. or Those perfect attendance uh, certificates. Uh-huh. And it was really depressing. I got fired for making crude jokes. It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. And so after I got fired, I was like, you know what? I don't know what to do. So I've I worked two jobs my entire college career. I was sending money back home wherever I could, like I just because like I, I just had to do what I had to do. So I always worked two jobs. And so when I got fired from there, I was like, okay, well, I'll just jump back into retail. I was an assistant manager at Air Postal for a while. And then I was after six months, I was like, okay, I can do this myself. And I moved to Charlotte, where almost all of my family lives. And I've got a job as a store manager at Things Remembered in Graven Shop. And I managed the team there for about a year. And I was like, you know what? I'm over this. I am so tired of it. And I got a customer came in one day. Her name is Jennifer Pruitt. And she was the senior vice president of internal communications for Bank of America. Really, really wonderful woman. And she kind of like, she invited me out to meet her team and to look around. And so like, it was never a job offer, which I always wonder, I was like, is she going to give me a job or not? Is this because I can't just be cheering for no reason. Uh, <laughs> but, but she kind of helped me put the fire in my belly. And I was like, OK, it's February. By the time March hits, I will have a job in design. And so I went through, I redesigned my website because at the time it was still built all totally in Flash. And I was told by 75 people, why the hell are you still using that? Flash is dead. <laughs> <laughs> And so I rebuilt it all and I got a job in a dental manufacturing company in Charlotte. And so they made really cool technology. And I was just like basically art director for all of their internal communications for the entire U.S. And when I was over that, I was like, okay, I'm not going to get anywhere really in, in the Carolinas. Like it's just not enough opportunity for me. And so I just cast a wide net and I landed on two jobs. One was at Ernst & Young in, in D.C. and the other was I was still interviewing for Capital One. And so Ernst & Young, I accepted the offer and I was going to move up there. And a week before, I just had this revelation. I told myself, I was like, you said that you never wanted to struggle ever again because I always had financial problems. And, you know, I grew up in a lower income family. So it was already hard. And so um, I was like, I never wanted to struggle again. I all, from now on, I'm committing to prosper and to be prosperous. And so a week before I was supposed to move to D.C., I called, I emailed because I was scared. I emailed the recruiter and I told her, I was like, I'm so sorry, but I just can't come. I have to rescind my um, my acceptance. And so her response was just, it was very short. It said, good luck on your career. And it almost felt like a death uh, march for me. Like I felt like, okay, I just, that was career suicide. I'm done now. I'll never find anything. And I sat, I switched between sleeping on my sister's couch in the spare room of my grandmother's house for about four weeks, five weeks. I had to call one of my friends and ask her if, I could, quote unquote, buy something from her on PayPal so that I can use my and she can give me the money back for my PayPal credit so that I could pay my car payment. Oh, wow. Like I was trying to find money wherever I could. Yeah. And weeks later, I actually got a call from I got a call from Capital One. They said, OK, well, we will, and this is after I interviewed the first time in so many weeks. 
Um, it's like, we want to invite you down for another interview. So I did rounds there. And then a week later, they said, okay, we're going to extend you an offer. And it was a great offer. It was way more than I would have gotten at EY. And then the cost of living in Dallas was so much cheaper. But then they were like, we'll have to move you, we'll move you down. Here's your sign-on bonus. We'll give you a sign-on bonus when you on your first paycheck. And I was like, Whoa. I don't have any money. How do I get there? And so I was scared. And I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. I just called the crew. I was like, look, I can't afford to get down there. Like, is there any way we can, you can help me out with this? And she was like, okay, well, let me go and check. And she came back. She's like, okay, we'll give you, we'll go ahead and give you your sign-on bonus. And we'll also take care of the taxes for you. So you just get the money straight. And so I used that money to pack up all my stuff into a U-Haul, collect, um, attach it to my car. And I just drove from South Carolina to Texas, to Dallas. It was a 16-hour drive. And I got there and stayed at Capital One as an art director for well, almost a year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. And then I got the bug again to move. I was like, okay, I've done this art direction thing. I'm managing other designers. I'm managing copywriters. I want to do more. And so I cast the net out again. And just so happened to start up was looking for a director of user experience and creative. I was like, why not? I can do it. I went to user experience intensive. So I know uh, intensive. So I know a little bit about UX <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> like anything else they asked me, I'll just like, I literally frantically did as much research as I possibly could to sound as smart as I could. And I got the job and it was enjoyable and I had a good time and, and it was about five months in that Microsoft reached out to me on LinkedIn. I was like, hey, what's going on? Like, can we talk? And I was like, yeah, sure. That was never on my radar. Um, and so we talked and the recruiter was like, oh, I didn't realize you were at this company in less than six months. I'm so sorry. I was like, well, it's fine. Like this, you probably won't find anything anytime soon. So sure, you can throw my resume out there and see what happens. And I was expecting to hear anything for six months or so. And like within three days, she's back with three different people who want to speak with me. And it was just really crazy because like in my mind, I'm like, I'm not the greatest designer. I'm definitely not a really great visual designer. The thing I do best is I tell amazing stories and I know strategy. Like those are my big things. And so like I, I just I would have never thought that that anything else would have told you that that would have never happened. A young, a lower, a black man from a lower income neighborhood in the South with a, for the most part, a single mother raising him, barely making $30,000 a year, always working overtime to now in Seattle, you know, and doing all this stuff, working at one of the biggest tech companies in the world and so on and so forth. Like the trajectory is, is crazy and humbling. And I'm never short of realizing that it's a complete blessing to be where I am. Wow. I mean, and all of this has happened <laughs> within like the span of like five years. I want, I think I want to yeah. communicate that this wasn't like some, huge journey. I mean, that's pretty short. I'm only 28, so I have a lot more to do. Damn. Well, my my <laughs> hat my hat goes off to you. I mean, that's that's wild, man. That's great. I yeah, I I, I can't really really add anything to that. One thing that that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting and I want to of course tie this into this Medium article that you wrote. You said that these mentors that you had said that you need to learn to let people see you. And then mm-hmm. I feel like that's just a really important thing for for anyone, particularly people of color, but I think anyone that works, you know, in corporate America where you could be in a, a position that you just feel like you're just a cog in the machine. But it's mm-hmm. important to kind of have that that perspective. But let's talk about this piece that you wrote on Medium, I should say, titled Dear AIGA Goodbye. What's brought you to that point? I've been back and forth with it for months. And 
I think a lot of it had to do with the culture work I've been doing, but I, I've been thinking about it back and forth for a month. And I, I, the more and more, like I would get these emails every day from Ion Design and I would scroll through them and then just delete them or just like mark them as red. And after a while, I wouldn't even open them. I would just mark them as red. And I was like, you know, because this doesn't have anything to do with me. Or like I remember having conversations with folks like like Antoinette and others where it's like, or Antoinette Carroll to have her give her full name. Like, and it, we would have conversations around like, because I, I would text her, I was like, have you seen the lineup for all the people going up for the executive board? And it was like this most homogenous thing. And I'm like, it's just as homogenous on the exec board almost as it is in the design community as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so now, like, you can look on there, it's like, oh, there's a lot of women and we have one or two black people. And we have some uh, Latinx folks on there. I was like, yeah, but all in all, it's still about the same. You know, if you look at the staff at AIGA, I think there are two black women or no, there's a, a black woman that I think was recently hired and then a black man who's the CFO. Mm-hmm. And so C-O-O. outside of that, I think this, yeah, the CEO, yeah. thank you. But outside of that, I think it's pretty homogenous as well. And so they do really well with women, but it, they're mainly white women. Yeah. And so I just realized that like AIGA just doesn't represent who I am. And then when looking at the diversity and inclusion stuff. And like, I think the one of the biggest catalysts for me was actually sitting and looking at the work that Maurice Woods did and is, or is doing. And I'm like, you know, and he's technically connected to AIGA as well, but he went off on, on his own and he's doing his work on his own. And I've heard so many stories of people who have taken some of the work that they started, the diversity work they started in AIGA, and they've had to branch it out and do it on their own. In Seattle, there's the LINK program, which helps, I think, middle through or elementary through high school students um, introduce them into design. And so within that, they, once they graduate, or it's actually, it's folks who had, I think, didn't graduate from, or graduated high school, but didn't go to college, who may have skills or want to learn about design. And you get them like certified or something like that, and they help them find a job. It's, it's like a, it, yeah, because it links them into the industry. And like, so I'm hearing about all these programs that started in AIGA and then left out. In Minnesota, there's the Art Buddies program where they have creative professionals who go out into the schools and they mentor children at an early age. They say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then they make costumes of these things like they create. They make journals. They, you know, they work with these creative professionals who aren't just designers, but writers and and project managers and so forth, just to learn that there's a plethora of opportunity in the design world. You know, like there's and there's all these folks that have these really interesting things, like Antoinette Carroll in her in Creative Reaction Lab in St. Louis. Like all these people started in AIGA trying to do something, or they tried to do an AIGA and were rejected, and they had to go off and do it on their own. And so I realized that the most powerful thing I could do for my community was to quit AIGA and do it on my own, because clearly that's the path to do it. Yeah, and, and to get it done. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> As people who have listened to the show know that I was a part of the AIGA Diversity and Inclusion Task Force for for three years. I just recently left at the beginning of July. And I know what you mean about kind of feeling a bit stagnant. Of course, you want to be a part of this organization because of their stature and their longevity. And you feel like they're able to help you out, hopefully, with what you're trying to do with your work and your career. But I've spoken with a number of designers through this podcast, you know, both on the show and off about AIGA and the general consensus is that the organization is not doing well for them as a black or brown designer. 
Yeah, and you know the interesting thing too is when I think about it, yes, AIGA has been around for now a hundred years or over a hundred years. Over a hundred years, yeah. Um, and you know, even when you and I spoke about this, they've been potentially working on things or asking a question around where black designers are since the nineties. And so it's like, at what point is it that it's it's time? You know, even now it's diversity inclusion task force. That means it's a task to be done and then it's done. It's it. Whereas if you look at the Women Lead Initiative, it's an initiative. It's something that sounds like it's ongoing that they're building on. So even when you look at the nuance and how they named the initiative, if you look at the fact that there's actually someone, I think, on a on paid staff who's really looking at the Women's Lead Initiative and Design for Good, but there's no one who's paid who's leading the diversity inclusion stuff. It's just like you start to realize that interesting things here, and it bleeds through even to the chapters. When I first moved to Seattle chapter, I said I could do the VP events because it's open, or I would like to just be like the director of diversity and inclusion. And so the initiative VP, she was all for it. And I was like, she was really excited about it because they needed some movement on it. They were really passionate about it. But then I spoke with the president and he basically said, well, yeah, there's, you know, we don't really see that it's a big enough thing to need it, need a director for right now. We, we're just kind of keeping it on a chair level. And for those who don't understand the nuance between director and chair is basically someone who's actually helping create initiatives and actually create those events and a person who's just tasked to run it. Yeah. And so like, I'm like, even at a local level, it's like that, you know, when I put that medium post out, uh, the president from South Carolina's chapter who moved now to, to Portland, he told me, he was like, I pushed so much to get diversity inclusion stuff into the South Carolina chapter. And I was shut down every time I was literally every time I tried to do something about diversity, I never got beyond, I never got past anyone. And so he's just reveling in the fact of having friends that aren't designers for a little while. It's like, it creates such negative experiences. It's really interesting that like, if people have been asking these questions since the nineties, why hasn't anyone actually done anything about it? You know, like, why is it that we say design is, the voice of the people and we're great communicators and we're this and that and we should be on the edge and we should be in front of on top of the curve or in front of it and yet we still are behind the curve i think we have diversity inclusion initiatives now because diversity inclusion is a buzzword mm. like it sounds good you know it's like oh there you know this is organizations for diversity inclusion or we believe in it so we have these affinity groups and so on and so forth no it's it's a buzzword for you and when it no longer is a buzzword, then you'll find something else to look at and you'll underfund diverse inclusion like you did previously. Yeah, it certainly is a buzzword now. And, and you know, from the work that I did with this presentation I put together, which I have to say is with AIGA's help and resources, uh, it was called Where Are the Black Designers? And that was based on a thesis from a designer, this woman named Cheryl D. Miller, that she did when she was a student at Pratt back in the like mid eighties, like I want to say like 84, 85, something like that. And then that ended up getting picked up by print magazine. And then that's when AIGA kind of took notice of it. And there was this journal article, there was a symposium and there were people that were telling AIGA kind of as an organization, you know, these are the things that you need to do. And it, it broke down to, to mentorship. It broke down to job opportunities Basically, we need the the things like that to get a leg up so we can be a viable part of this design industry. And, you know, I can tell you from doing that research, from talking with with uh, with older designers that have worked with AIGA, what I feel happens is that as 
the leadership changes, so does the course of the organization. And so while AIJ might have this overarching goal of being the sustainable organization for designers, how that ends up being interpreted through initiatives and exhibits and events and things like that varies wildly as the leadership changes, which I think also is what ends up, you know, kind of that trickles down to the chapters because as the chapter leadership changes, so does its perception in the community and who they reach out to, et cetera. And then as it goes down to members, it's like, you don't really know what you're going to get out of them at any given time that you're a part of the organization. I mean, even the three years of me being on the task force were, there were some wild, drastic changes, even in that short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, this interesting thing that you say, you mentioned around exhibitions. So one of the executive board members, Chris Simmons, Christopher Simmons, mm. and he, so I got a few responses from my medium posts and I really appreciate all the responses. Uh, but it's interesting because I got three different perspectives from three executive board members, inclusive of Julie. And so uh, Christopher Simmons, he, he kind of pointed out two major things. One was, and I, I've called it out back to him. One was like, hey, this is the work that was being done in San Francisco. And this is an organization called Studio 5. And they're really trying to figure out how to, or they're really doing a lot of impact around, have a lot of impact around K through 12 introduction and, and continuance of design to minority individuals. And so my response to him was, that's a very micro view. That's what one chapter is doing. That's not what the organization is doing. Yeah. And then the other side was, well, don't you think there's actually, you know, there's also this, this other thing around, what if we get lobbying to get rights for people? And so that like artist rights, like photography has, or things around pay equality and whatnot, with, like for like that SAG has and all these other organizations. Like, yeah, those are great talking points for affluent members that you're trying to bring in. But that doesn't affect me. I don't have to worry about any type of copyrights because I signed over all of that when I joined Microsoft. I know that any design that I do belongs to Microsoft and I can only you know, show it once it's been released to the world and say, OK, I'm one of the people who helped work on this thing. So like for especially as an in-house person that it doesn't impact me, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so like but he well, him as well as Julie, she mentioned something about or no, he mentioned something around exhibitions around like having exhibitions and around culture and so on and so forth. I was like, yeah, again, that's for affluent members. You're doing an exhibition to teach people about the disparities of design, but how does that actually create action? How are you truly making impact because you put a couple of pictures on the wall or, or words on in a book? Like, how does that help me? Because, and that was one of the, one of the lines in my um, post was, uh, was around, I completely understand that the design industry is only 6% black. I've heard it numerous times. I've seen the IBM workshop or design thinking workshops around it. And like all these things don't do anything except like basically make everyone in the room think about it for the two seconds that you're on the stage and then they go on to the next thing once you're gone. And so, yeah, it may sound impactful, but you're not giving me action plans actually doing it. You're not telling me how to get it done. You're not telling me how you plan on getting it done. And that was a point I made for to both him and, and Julie on Medium was what is the roadmap? What are the goals? Yeah. What is the structure that you're putting around these things? What are the milestones? So if you're saying that we're going to, that this is the, the focus of the diversity and inclusion task force, well, what are their tasks? Are they just a shotgun in which you shoot and it's a scatter shot to the multiple different targets and you <laughs> hope something hits? 
Like, cause, and that was like, that's verbatim what I said, yeah. was, you know, cause that's what it feels like. It's a shotgun. And I'm, I'm like, no, this has to be intentional. You have to tell me that in 2017, we have this goal in 2025, we have this goal. And in between here are all the milestones get to each of those things yeah. and how we can totally do it. But no one's thinking like that. No one's thinking strategically. And so because there's not that strategic thought, there's actually not any action being done. It's just what we're thinking about doing, what we're considering doing. For example, Julie made the comment around, you know, empowering or uh, working to train the task force members to be consultants. And in my mind, I'm like, and I actually posed the question to her as well. And I'm hoping that she's reached out to me on Twitter and asked if we could have a conversation. So I'm hoping that we do have a conversation, like a real conversation. Yeah. But she said, you know, making them consultants. And, and I'm like, well, are you also going to teach them about culture and how to do, create those structures within a company to ensure that people feel safe and feel accepted? Yeah. Because I worked for a very white company once and I felt like every day I had to be an apologetic black person. Like I had to always smile. If I had a bad day, they asked me what was wrong. If I had a problem with my manager, I had to rephrase those problems I had as I statements. I feel like I could do better as opposed, and what can I do better to communicate as opposed to you're not communicating to me effectively and you're not, you're leaving me high and dry consistently. Like I had to take those things on my onus so that I wouldn't feel attacked. So how do you teach those people on a task force to, to train companies to include people to not have those microaggressions to, is a litany of things. And so it's like, yeah, these words sound amazing and they're amazing talking points for investors but they mean nothing in the real world. And that's where I'm working in. It's like, yeah, it's hard work and it's a lot of work, but somebody has to do it and someone actually has to start. So who's going to start? Yeah. It's <laughs> shotgun. Sorry, I just went really deep. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I am okay with that. No, the, when you said shotgun, I thought that was interesting because being on the other side of that, being in the, in the task force and other members of the task force can probably give their own perceptions and, and we're, you know, their own perspective on this, but I felt it was more like we were the cleanup crew. Like mm. things would happen, you know, whether it was something that happened through social media or something that another organization did. And it always felt like we were being tasked to give the response to be more reactive than proactive, which I was totally not okay with. I felt like we needed to start getting in front of a lot of things instead of getting behind something that had already happened. I give you a prime example. When Donald Trump was elected as president, <laughs> we were really like, is the, is AIGA going to make some sort of a statement about this, you know, from the organization or is, you know, or is the organization going to have to say something and then we have to come behind and like corroborate that or clean it up or clarify what that message was. And I think they eventually said something, but I feel like this was after AIA, the American Institute of Architects, really kind of stepped in it by mentioning that all of their members were behind Trump. And <laughs> then there was a big hashtag campaign, not my AIA, that was like, no, we are not behind him. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, from my vantage point, it felt like we were more so just like cleaning up the messes that happened as opposed to going out there and kind of trying to make some change. So I see what you mean about there not being that action plan, that strategy, and that no one is thinking strategically. And I'm going to name a name. And for people that are listening, I would like for them to follow up with this person directly because AIGA does have a director of strategic initiatives. This person who is the director of strategic initiatives is not only the, I'm loath to say overseer because of the connotation, but she sort of has the jurisdiction, I should say, 
over the AIGA task force, DNI task force, over the women's initiatives, over a number of different strategic initiatives that involve strategy. <laughs> and her name is Letitia Wolf. So you can go to AIGA's website, click on the about page. You can see her email address. You can see her phone number. If there's anybody that people need to be reaching out to about strategy, it's her. And I'm not saying that to counteract anything that you're mentioning, but this is for people that are listening that really want to know y'all need to be talking to her because I can tell you from being on the task force, everything had to, in some, you know, some form or fashion had to funnel through her. Like she was the inflection point between things that we were doing on the task force that we wanted to get done and having that done through the megaphone that is AIGA. So because it had to pass through that one person, sometimes that meant some things happened. A lot of times it meant a lot of things didn't happen. And you and I, you know, we talk off mic about this. So people want to get some information about like what's happening and why things aren't being done and why you don't know what's going on with the task force. Please talk to her. I'm sure she would love to hear from you. Well, you know, what's interesting too, because I will bring up this point is, and I think this is a problem with AIG as a whole and not specifically just to Letitia, but the definition or defining of what is and what isn't a designer and who deserves to be highlighted within AIGA's realm. What have they done? What, how are they good enough for this? That question, if you always ask that question, especially when it comes to designers of color, you're always going to have a really small slate of people to, to feature. And a lot of times it's going to end up being the same people over and over again because your lens of what have they done is so, for lack of a better term, whitewashed mm-hmm. that people will, none of us will ever qualify. Like I know, and this is actually really sad, is that uh, and it was really surprising that I got the response I did from the Medium Post because ultimately, if by AIGA standards, I've done nothing with my career, I'm nowhere, and I have a long way to go. Mm. And so, like, you know, honestly, I love Gage. Gage was one of the previous presidents for Seattle. He's a really great guy, but he, he posted on my post on Facebook, and he kind of said the same sentiment of, like, I was like, this stuff, he had a little bit, of, we, he and I had a little bit of back and forth, but at one point his sentiment was, you know, I've been in AIGA for five years. And so like I've been presidents and I've been a chair of this and that and so on and so forth. And basically you have to do your time mm. before you can, because bas- what I was responding to was he said that there's ways for you to, to make change from within. Like you don't have to quit. You can do it from within. And I told him, you're, you're speaking from a place of power. Yeah. What I didn't say was you're speaking from a place of privilege, which is also true. (laughs) But you're speaking from a place of power, and that power is you are directly linked to national. So you can say, man, this slate is a little whitewashed. Or you can say, hey, we need to get more training for presidents or so on and so forth. Like That's in your purview because you have that direct direct link. I don't. I have to go through levels of people to get to that. And so you went from telling me there's opportunity to do this from within to telling me, you need to basically do your time. And then when the time comes, then you can come in and try to make change or get those connections. And so that was really interesting. And then actually one of the folks from your home chapter, Atlanta chapter, they commented as well. It was like, thank you so much uh, for this. You know, I'm sending this back to our chapter because and we're going to use this to kind of help push and empower folks and try to do more. And Gage's response to that was, that's how you do work from within. And I was like, that's so passive aggressive. You're basically telling me I'm a quitter. And so I'm not willing to do the work. And it's funny because I've gotten more out of AIGA from quitting in the past four days than I ever have in the past six years that I've been in the organization. Uh 
And it's so like that is kind of mind boggling. Like I've gotten reached out to folks from that are heads of organizations of major companies. And I've gotten people who are actually actively in the organization saying, thank you. I'm so happy someone said something. One of the executive board members who's actually who actually commented on my Medium post. I'm not sure if he's past or present, but he also commented and said, thank you. He was like, thank you for fighting the good fight. Glad you said something. He said that, you know, he's actually going through, it was Richard Holland. Oh, yeah, um, I know Rich, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he said, I'm happy that you're fighting the good fight. He mentioned, like, I'm also going through this editing process because this is something that's important to me as well. And so, like, I got a lot of support from a lot of the IGA people, but it was also those bits of passive aggression where it's like, you know, good luck on everything, but we're still in it. We're still here. Mm. And so it's like, well, you're still drinking the Kool-Aid. You still have these problems and you see their issues, but you're going to stay in. And it's for me, and forgive me if I insult anybody, but it's almost like, like a beaten wife syndrome. It's like, he's beating me, but I'm going to stay. And so it's like, at what point do you decide to leave and do something different? Because clearly this isn't doing what you need to do. And mind you, I would say, I have no ill intent towards the IGA. I feel like it's an amazing group to meet people. I've met really great people in AIGA, and but most of the people who have told me they've gotten jobs from AIGA are white people. Most of the people who have told me they have gotten crazy opportunities from AIGA for the most part are white folks. I think there are folks within AIGA who are of color who have been propelled into the arena, thankfully because of a lot of their own work. And I'm not sure how much they credit to AIJ and how much they credit to themselves. But hands down, it really, the slate becomes very homogenous really quick. I am fanning myself over here. I'm so hot in terms of what you just <laughs> said. I mean, in a, in, in a good way, because and first, before I go into kind of what you said, when I mention Letitia's name for people that are listening, hell, if Letitia is listening, I am not mentioning this for anybody to like gang up on her. But I feel that if you are a dues-paying member of AIGA, and this is something that I was told from Rick Griffey, who was the former executive director, like, he told me that no member, like, in terms of, like, level of hierarchy and things like that, every member should be able to have their say. And so mm-hmm. if you're a paid, paying, dues-paying member of AIGA, it is your responsibility and your right, honestly, as a member, to talk to these people that are getting a paycheck from your dues. So if this is the person that has a director of strategic initiatives, if this is an initiative that you feel like you're not hearing enough stuff from, talk to that person and ask them what is up. Put the pressure on them. Talk to them. Find out what is happening. Because otherwise, as both of us are communicating, you know, Tim and I, otherwise that information is not getting out there. You know, what's interesting about what you said about being a dues paying member, and I put this in my post passively, but I wasn't just paying $50 a year for my membership. I was paying $500 a year. I was paying as a design leader. I was paying the level below trustee. I was paying at a place where my name was is on the AIGA website yeah. and you see me there. And so I make that note to say like I was truly investing in AIGA for what I decided, like for as much as I decided I wanted to put in. I was going to put $2,500 in, but I mean the 500, I feel like that's 500 I can put on a pair of shoes. And I love my shoes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm investing in this organization that's not investing in me. Yeah. And that was like, what am I, what am I spending $500 a year for? Like, 
And it's not my company paying for it. I'm coming out of my own pocket with it. Yeah. You're giving me a discount to move. Thank you. You're giving me a discount to Shutterstock. Well, I'm a UXer, so I don't use stock imagery that much. Like, what am I getting out of it that's of benefit to me? Like, I've never gotten a response to a job that I've applied to on AIG. Oh, say that. Um, Neither have I. In some in some <laughs> cases, and I'm just going to interject here. In some cases, especially here at the local level, I know for a fact that AIGA has blocked it. Mm, it's just and that's the thing is sometimes if I had any message for current members of AIGA, of AIGA is know your worth. Like yeah. please know your worth. And if you don't know how much you're worth when it comes to the organization, then you need to really figure it out. Because I figured it out and I realized that I'm worth more than what it could provide for me. Like. It's just really interesting to see folks who are all in it who like this is a volunteer organization. Yes. We don't get paid to be on the board. Yes. And yet I'm dealing with passive aggression. I'm dealing with leaders who don't know how to lead. I'm dealing with people who are demanding things of me and having to like manage other folks in a way that I don't feel like I should manage adults who I'm not being paid to manage. Like Come on. I'm doing all these things for an organization that I'm paying for. So I'm paying you to stress me out every day of the week. <laughs> On top of my work, why am I paying you to stress me out? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just really interesting. And you mentioned AIA previously. One guy posted on, I'm not sure if he sent me a message on Twitter. I've been blown up on so many social media sites because of this stuff. But um, they mentioned, like, look at how AIGA is and then go to these other professional organizations. Go to the AIA. Go to, I think the other way they listed was the IA. IIA something. Oh, IDSA for industrial. Yeah, IDSA. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so those types of organizations, look and see what they're doing. They're actually respected. They actually have a name that means something. They're actually doing things for their members. Now look at AIGA. Who respects AIGA's name truly? Like, I live in Seattle. Here is Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Boeing. Like, we have all these major corporations. Yeah. And the membership here of those who are actually engaged in AIGA very low. We have more people who go to more of the grassroots organizations here that have presentations than AIGA stuff. Why, why do we have that? If AIGA has been around for 100 years and it's so powerful and it cares about its members, then why is it that we don't have all these tech companies in our pocket buying massive memberships for their employees and ensuring that they're a part of any type of event or initiative that we have? Yeah. You have to begin to ask those questions like, yeah, we have Adobe. Adobe's been around for a while. Well, Adobe profits the most from us. But what about everyone else? You know, so. that's not a very fair. That's a very fair critique. You know, it's funny. I think about Canada when you mentioned that, because Canada has a number of, of design organizations. They have RGD. They have GDC. And I know with I think it's with RGD specifically, like you have to take a test to be a member. It's not mm-hmm. just like, oh, I paid X number of dollars a year and now I'm a member. It's like you have to take an assessment test. They have to look through your portfolio. And so because they've got this kind of rigorous standard upon membership, they're able, I think, to command a greater, I guess, amount of levity when it comes to people knowing who the organization is from a enterprise level, company level, startup, et cetera. I don't see that from AIGA. I mean, I think they want to get to that level. And maybe that's just not been something that was a concern to them starting out. But I mean, like you said, it's over a hundred years old. Like a lot of people do not hold AIGA in that level of esteem. One thing you said earlier about, you know, paying your dues, which I think is 
again, this is a from an inside perspective. Uh, there's been a lot of pu- very public criticisms of AIGA this year. There's been yours. There was one from a guy who very vocally left AIGA West Michigan. I've yeah. heard more than a few podcast episodes from designers that are like, what does AIGA even mean when you look at who a designer is today? Because a designer is not just a print designer. They're a product designer. They're an experience designer. They're a motion graphics designer, et cetera. Is AIGA adapting to the current modern designer? And what I can tell you is that from the inside, they do talk about each one of these I mean, you've been in the Slack group, you know, they do talk uh-huh. about these criticisms when they happen. The problem is they also they justify their behavior based on who the person is giving the criticism. And that is yes. the problem yes. because they will say, oh, yeah, well, this is, you know, such and such. But I'm surprised they said that because we invited them to blah, blah, blah. And they spoke of us. So I don't know why they would say like people can't hold opposing thoughts at the same time. Well, it's just like last year for AIGA's conference, we invited was it Mike Montero. We invited him to speak, and there was an uproar in, in the <laughs> entire organization. Why would you invite him? He hates AIGA. He says such bad things. Oh, we're going to have to manage what he says and so on and so forth. Manage. And oh, my God. Yeah. I was privy to hearing about some of that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was ridiculous. But you know what's funny is he's one of the few people who not only liked but retweeted one of my – we told him my post, but not only – but he didn't actually – in fact – no, he liked it, and then he went through, highlighted a portion, and then tweeted that portion. Like, I mean, so just because you invited him onto the stage doesn't mean he's now drinking the Kool-Aid. Like, y'all actually have to do something. I forgot her name, but the head of communication design for Slack, uh, she... Christy Tillman. Um, yes, she actually liked and retweeted my post as well. And I've heard recently that I've just found out that she's had some struggles <laughs> with AIGA. She has, yeah. <laughs> some criticism. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like... All these people are in high power positions. They're really well known. Maybe we should try to figure out what exactly they're talking about. But like to your point, yeah, they always chop down folks are saying like with these, well, this is why or so on and so forth. After I posted my message, Carlos Estrada, I think is his last name. Is amazing oh, yeah. Guy. He's on the test. That's, that's, that's the homie. Carlos is the homie. He is great. He took it. He said, you know what, y'all, I'm not leaving, but I strongly believe in everything that Tim said. He posted it on the Slack channel. He posted it on the base camp. And I know this because folks were sending me screenshots saying, hey, look, AIG is on fire because of you right now. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, well, hopefully it means something. But the thing is, when he posted on Slack, I looked at the comments. And so, like, you see folks who, like, their, their reaction was so interesting because you had, you had the, the people of color who said, I agree. And then you had the white folks who said, and I don't mean this in a, a racist type way, but it's true. Like you had the white folks who were responding like, or not all of them, a few of them, I should say. They were responding like, well, I would agree with some of the things he was saying, but all in all, I think X, Y, and Z. I'm like, okay, so you only agree with a piece of what I'm saying. And there's a caveat that you don't agree with X, Y, and Z. But why does that even, like, do you not agree with those caveats because you think we're doing a good job or because you're not willing to do the work? I'm like, what is your view to say that, you agree with some things, but not the other. It's like, I don't think I said anything from my perspective that can really be gone against because even the responses I've received from folks who are doing the work, quote unquote, they couldn't actually rebut anything that I pushed, that I asserted. And so what is there? Like, why did, why did it have to be caveats to my perspective? Why can't you just say, you know what? I see where you're coming from. Totally get it. That's it. 
like, is there anything worthy to be said? Yeah. And that's actually why I put the caveats in my poster stuff. I said, in saying specifically, I am not privy to every conversation. Right. Because I don't want, like, I didn't want that to be part of like, oh, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, you can't say that you don't agree with me because I don't know what I'm talking about because I've already caveated that. Mm-hmm. I've also said that, hey, maybe I wasn't the best board member because honestly, half the time I didn't agree with what was going on and I didn't want to waste my time doing it. I really didn't. Or it got to a point where I started ignoring Slack because they weren't doing anything or saying anything that I cared about. And so maybe I wasn't the best board member, but I went ahead and said that forward so you can't tear me down because of that. So what else is there? Yeah. Is it becomes, oh, well, he quit. So like, why does it matter? I was like, we're still here to do the work and he quit. So that's the general response I feel like I've seen is we're going to stay and do the work. You're a quitter. Good luck. Yeah. When I left the task force, I mean, and I'm, I'm still a, a paying member, but when I left the task force, it was, it felt like they were, I don't know. They treated me like I had a terminal disease. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. Oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll miss you so much. I'm like, I'm still here. Like, you you all have my email addresses. You can still reach out to me about stuff. I'm just no longer a part of the task force. And I mean, even though I did have issues with the task force, I left on what I feel, at least for the majority of the members, I left on very congenial terms. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I think much later I got like this little care package from from the diversity and inclusion task force. I think it was from headquarters specifically. And it had, you know, a book from the gala and it had some postcards and things from design stuff that I know that we sort of had a hand in. And there was like a handwritten note from two AIGA employees. And one of the the handwritten notes was very nice, very, you know, kind of heartfelt. Thank you for your work. The other note was, was passive aggressive and was like, I know you would have liked to see change, but it's a process like, duh, like, I don't know that, you know? (laughs) So it's, yeah, I, uh, I can't really even, I agree. All I can say is I agree with, with everything that, that you are are talking about there, because, you know, even then at the local level, you know, that I think for, for most members, their relationship with AIGA is only as strong as the relationship with their local chapter. And like you and I, of course, are seeing it from, from different perspectives than the average member because you're on a board position. I was on task force. So we're at kind of different levels of insight into the organization than a regular paying member. But even then, like it varies wildly from chapter to chapter, like DC chapter out here is doing great. Chicago chapter is doing great. Atlanta chapter is, I mean, I've got my own personal issues with the Atlanta chapter and they are aware of it. And so even if I were just to base my relationship from AIGA on that, I would not be a member because I've reached out as a non-member before just to ask questions about events and programming and never gotten a response. But it wasn't until they saw me on a big stage somewhere that happened to be in Atlanta that all of a sudden, oh, we need to know who you are. Oh, you know what? Let's go out to lunch. Oh, you know what? Let's have drinks. And it's like, I've been writing y'all for like three years trying to get a response back. But now, now I'm hot. Y'all want to know, Oh, well, who is this guy and what's he doing and all this sort of stuff. Like I was doing all this stuff before y'all just discovered who I was. This is not a yeah, new thing. Right. And that's the thing is like, it's very transactional. Like you, yes. you come to find out yes. that a racial relationship with AIGA is a transactional relationship. And it's not even like quid pro quo. It's what can you do for us? So when you vacate a position, Oh, now how do I feel this position? Not, 
oh, I'm really sad that you're leaving. I hope we can still be friends or still, you can still come out, whatever. Yeah. You know, like when I left the Seattle chapter, you know, just this past week or so, I had already had a lunch planned with one of the, the VPs. So she and I met and we chatted about what was going on. But outside of that, I've heard from nobody. You know, like it's been radio side. Actually, no, that's not true. I heard from one other person who he actually kind of shared a lot of my sentiments. And so he was like, oh, I heard you. So you're quitting. And so he and I had a chat about it. But outside of that, yeah, it's been radio silence. I've heard nothing. And so it's if you can't do anything for AIGA, then you're not seen by AIGA. Like they don't really see you. Mm. And that's what I've felt like has been really, really prevalent. And so like, I mean, I love Antoine and I love Tim. Tim Hikes, I feel like they're really good people. And even Jacinda, like I feel like those folks who are trying to do work on some level, trying to get things better through, within AIGA, but I feel as though what AIGA does to them is that they put them on a pedestal and they use them. So Antoinette was put on this pedestal in Julie's response to me saying, we're working with her to expand her program, but her program was supposed to start within AIGA. The chapter said, no, we don't care about it. So she had to leave and do it. And now AIGA wants to be a part of it because her work is getting so big because she's speaking at all these different conferences and she's, you know, speaking at Fortune 500 companies and whatnot. And so it's like, what can we do to spread the name of AIGA? And if you can help me with that, and then we will engage with you. And if that's the best I can get out of it, then I prefer to get out of it. I agree with that. And yeah, Antoinette is doing, you know, some really great work. I'll actually be seeing her at the Black and Design Conference that's coming up in October. Uh, she's, yeah, she's doing some really great work. I totally agree with that. And yeah, it does feel like you almost have to kind of leave and do something else before they decide, oh, we had a good thing. Now, how do we sort of get back? You know, I don't want to say in their good graces because I don't know the relationship upon which they left, but yeah, it's like you feel like you have to get out to have more forward movement than what you can do because it feels like they might be holding you back in some sort of way. I mean, hell, when I was part of the task force, I would love to have been trained as a consultant. I saw that response that, that Julia gave. I'm like, if anything, stuff that I was doing with Revision Path, AIGA felt like they didn't really want that much of a part of it. I mean, aside from, I know I put together a playlist of episodes for them and I did the Where Are the Black Designers thing, but that was all in 2015. That was pretty much it. That was pretty much it. Whenever it was anything about someone speaking at a conference or or an event or things like that, they had sort of a special few people that they were only kind of pushing towards those kinds of opportunities. And the rest of us were just like, you know, I don't want to say workhorses, but that kind of that's kind of what it felt like is that's what we were oh. around for us to like do the the kind of work. I know when I left, there was all this talk about, well, how are we going to find Maurice's replacement? And I'm sort of like, well, this is a volunteer organization. That's that's y'all problem. But they were like, well, can you send us a list of names of people that you think? And I, I did have some people that I thought might be good, but it's also like we're all volunteering here. You know, it's not like I'm leaving. You need to hire someone. You know, it's it's volunteering. But I, I do wish, you know, and when I was a part of the task force, that they were kind of doing more things to help out us members individually. I know before I left, actually, it was like three days before I left. Someone else had quit the task force in a very, not a public way, but in more of like a drastic, like, fuck this shit, I'm out of here kind of way, <laughs> like a flip the table mm-hmm. kind of way with, yeah. with their local chapter, because she was doing a bunch of work with them on diversity and inclusion. And they just were not trying to help her like get a job so she could pay her bills. And she was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm out. 
I felt that like in my spirit, I felt that because it didn't feel like, you know, personally as a designer, they were helping me out. It was more so what am I doing to benefit the organization? But the organization is mm-hmm. not doing anything to kind of benefit me as a person. Right. Now, like you, you talk about all these disparities in design when it comes to like, there's so many jobs out there and those jobs keep growing, but you, you don't help me fit into the job. You know, you don't help get me connected to the right people because we have the connection. Right. We have all the connections we need. I know that. I mean, during my time, I hadn't, like I said, here at the local chapter, I know that I've been blocked certainly from some positions because of whatever my relationship was with the local board or the local chapter. But even as I was part of the task force, I mean, no one was reaching out to me specifically to say, hey, can you come speak at our conference because you're on the task force? Or, oh, we have this this opportunity that you might be interested in because of that. None of that happened because of me being on the task force. And that's mm-hmm. not to say that me being on the task force was so I could be privy to those opportunities, but also those opportunities weren't available as well. So when you know, Julie was responding and saying that she wants to like train folks to be consultants. I'm like, how the hell is that going to work? Cause I don't, I don't yeah. from, from my perspective, I don't see how y'all are going to make that happen. But you know, if you're going to try to turn the task force into job core, then by all means go right ahead. I'd like to see how that happens. God bless her. Like I, I really do think she's a really, she is, she is, she is very nice. I mean, we're, I mean, for people yeah. that listen, I know we're shitting on AIGA right now, but like <laughs> Julie is like super nice, super personable. This is not any slight on her as an individual oh, at she, all. Yeah. She truly cares. I just think the problem is that I, well, I think it's two things. One, I think she really cares, but she doesn't know how to do it. And so she's, she's leaning on other people to help do the work, but the folks that she's leaning on either don't know how to do the work or don't care to do the work. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of part of the problem because, you know, she had the same talking point around these things take time. And so I'm like, I totally get that, but there is still this level of communication. And like, you know, I kind of pushed on like one of the biggest issues I found when doing my culture work was around communication. Like what are the streams of communication? How do we provide feedback? How do we receive feedback? How do we ensure that like two people can have critical conversations in a way that allows both parties to walk away understanding completely the other person's perspective, or at least not even completely, partially the other person's perspective. Yeah. And so it's like, if you look at all this that she was saying, it's like, oh, this all sounds great, but what of it is being communicated out? You know, some of the stuff she said, I had a response from folks who were like, I didn't know that she was doing that. Let me find out. You know, it's like... <laughs> Because it, some of it had to do with them or their business. And I'm like, well, how is it that you don't know about the plans that they have for you? Like, oh, are you God now? So you got four I know the plans I have for you? Like, what? Okay, Jesus. Like, <laughs> it's like you should know these things. There should be something that's communicated. Like, if we know that diversity inclusion is as important as women lead, then why is it that we get so little about diversity and inclusion, like, as far as actual action plans? Like, yeah, the, the women lead toolkit, what in my book is very useless, beautifully designed, but useless. The fact is that they made something, they did something. I mean, the diversity task force, we do podcasts. Like, I think they just had one with two women from like indigenous groups here in the U.S. And so like, I know they, they have these podcasts and stuff, but like, what are you actually doing? Yeah. You're constantly bringing awareness to things. Awareness is amazing. I love awareness. Tell more people, get more people involved. But like marketing 101 
is after awareness is the CTA, is the call to action. Yep. So tell me about what's going on and then tell me how to fix it or how you plan on fixing it. So you look at these companies, like part of the reason why um, I think it was the Experian who got hacked Equifax. Uh, recently. Equifax, yeah. They got hacked recently. They were radio silent. They, this hack happened. It was released and found out. And like, you didn't really find out what they were going to do about it. You had to go to a website to learn, oh, I get a year's worth of, of identity protection. But after a year's up, someone can use my stuff as much as they want again. So it's like this thing of you told someone and they, you had to force them to go and look for the answer as opposed to telling someone, like telling this is what we're doing and how we're going to do it. And so that's my problem is like for us to be quote unquote visual communicators, we suck at communication. Yeah. And the things that we're communicating, we suck at action. <laughs> like we don't know how to do it. Let's just do something. Like, you know, I, you mentioned HBCUs in the work that you were trying to get the folks to do there with the previous president. And, and so it's like, you know, how are we actually spending time going to HBCUs, to these tribal colleges, to the HSIs, and like talking to these folks and saying like, hey, tell us how to best serve you. Right. You know, like, how do we do this? How can you say that you care about diversity inclusion when most of the things you do, if you look at the staff, you look at the executive staff and they don't look like the folks you're trying to fully represent. If you're saying you care about this, then how come they aren't representative of that? You know, like, and it's not just black people or brown people, it's people with disabilities, like someone with like, how are we highlighting folks with colorblindness or who don't have arms and somehow can still build a crazy website or whatever? Because like, I don't know, like, what are we doing for those folks as well? Or are we still just talking about it? Right. They'll, they'll and, get a feature on Ion Design. Right. Exactly. And child, don't get started. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that took me to a different place. But no, it's the thing is like, it's great. We have this. And, you know, the other problem is, and this is the other struggle with the task force, is that if you look at a lot of the comments that was going out for a long time, it was primarily focused on blacks and design. And it doesn't really, it's not really considering the entire picture of what DNI is. Yeah. It's only, at one point, it was only looking at just black people, which, certain side, I'm very heartened by that. Like, yes, thank you. Look at me, see me, do something for mm-hmm. me. But the same token is like, you know, what about my brother Jose over here who's looking for a job just as much as I have? Right. Just because he lives in Texas, that means that maybe the population is higher, so he's more off, he has a better chance of getting a job. But what if he moves to Idaho? Now what the hell does he do, you know? Yeah. Like, we, we don't address those things in a way that are actionable. We don't really address everybody when we talk about diversity inclusion. So there's just levels to this stuff that is just really interesting to me. And one thing I mentioned to you before, and I'll say again, is that the hard thing is if you're not sipping the Kool-Aid, then you're seen as a dissenter. And if you're a dissenter, that means that you're not a part of this group and we're trying our best that you to, to push you out and to silence you. And so I'm blessed that I haven't had a lot of people who were dissenters trying to silence me uh-huh. through this whole process. But the same token, I've seen it happen. Like I've seen people who like being an AIGA and like really sipping a Kool-Aid is like being in a Bayhive. Like you tweet <laughs> something you don't like about it and they come out of nowhere just like stinging the heck out of you. Like it's, it's legit. Like, oh my God, that, that is so true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying. That is so true. <laughs> It's so deep. And it's like, man, y'all better get your worth out of this organization. Oh, man. my God. <laughs> and, and I can tell you that that webcast you're talking about with talking to indigenous designers, I can tell you 
that was a that was almost a year in the making. I proposed mm. that a year ago when I was in the task force. So that was one of the first ones that we should do was talk to Native American First Nations designers. So I'm glad they did it. I don't know why they waited to the end to do it, because I think it was like the last one in the series that they put together. But yeah, wow. So outside of AIGA, specifically here in the U.S., there's other design organizations. There's there's a Graphic Artist Guild. There's IDSA, which you mentioned earlier. There's a SEGD, which is the Society for Experiential Graphic Design. There's the One Club, although that's that's kind of more towards advertising, but designers are kind of a part of that, too, because they do this... Uh, this event called Here Are All the Black People. Mm. I'll even throw in the organization of black designers for what it's worth. But if you had the resources to create your own design organization, what would you want to see? You know, it's funny because this is, this is what I've been thinking about recently because all this is, for me, has been a catalyst of like, okay, you, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I don't want to say I'm going to speak about all this stuff and make awareness but not do anything. So what is my next step? Like, what do I do? And so for me important is several things. One is really understanding the entire breadth of design. Like it's not just graphic design and UX and so on and so forth. Like I read a really great post just the other day on Medium about six reasons why graphic designers should also learn UX. And it's like being multidisciplinary. I feel like that is the the foundation of design is multidisciplinary experience. And I feel like that's something we need to get back into the root of is being in like being able to do multiple things. So that's one huge thing is just something that's founded on multidisciplinary uh, uh, principles. And then of course, multicultural principles and just inclusive principles, like things that when I look at an organization, I see this and say, you know what, this, I see myself in here and I see my impact on the organization. I see the impact of the organization on the community. And I see how I can make impact on the community either through the organization or with the organization, like in partnership. And so that's actually something I've been thinking about. Like, how do you create that? Like, how do you get folks who will rally behind that? And that is not just just black people, you know, just black and brown people, but white folks, too, like or Asian folks or whatever, like all these people, people with certain accessibility issues. Like, how do we make something that's truly diverse and inc- inclusive in a way that anyone who hears about it or knows about it feels like they see themselves in it? But also I would love to get to a place where there's an organization where I can put it on my resume and some someone who's hiring me actually looks at that on my resume and comments on it. Because mm. I've put AIG on my resume before. In fact, it's on it now if you were to go to my website. But I've never had a single person comment on it or ask me about it or ask me what I do in it or my work around it. I've had to educate every job I've had. I've had to educate the people there as to what AIG was and why it was important or why you should join it or what kind of work that it did. And so on one side, great, I was an evangelist. I was telling people about it. But if you didn't see the worth or wasn't the worth wasn't presented to you in college or by your professors where a lot of times this influence is instilled, then a lot of times you, you just don't get it and you won't get it. So like, how do we put something on our resume that's just as strong as the AIA? You know, like, or I, I can say I'm a part of this organization. I have whether it's certification or whatever, but this is what I do within it. And this is my role X, Y, and Z. And I take, I can take these skills that I learned within this organization and apply it to any type of role that I have. And so it sounds like a lot and it's a big pill to chew on, but I'm, I'm just trying to think about either ways to work with people to create that thing or to work with organizations that are already doing it and then just lend my support and my, my hands to whatever their work is. 
in one response to your, your medium article, as it relates to AIGA, you say that that chapter of your life is over. What's in the next chapter for you? You know, action, you know, I, I'm, I'm honestly, you know, this is, is interesting because this post has been a bit of a wave and I'm going to write it as long as I can. I'm going to talk to as many people as I can. I'm going to get as much exposure as I can just to be a different face in the crowd. And with that, I'm going to build on it in the best way that, that helps, A, helps me, but also helps other people. I feel like there's a lot of stuff we can do, just like the emerging designer section alone. I'm one of those designers who I didn't have a Mac or a PC in college. Mm-hmm. I went to the, the design studio every day and stayed late at night to get work done. And so I couldn't, I, like when I graduated college, I didn't have anything to work on. I couldn't redesign my website. Wow. My first computer I got after I graduated college, I bought off of QVC because I could do six payments of $72. Come on. And so <laughs> that's how, and like that's, and then with the design programs, I had to find pirated versions to be completely honest. Like that's how, what I had to do to just start, just to get my website redesigned, just to get in, it in front of somebody who cared to look at it to get a job. Yeah. And so I feel like that's an area where we kind of forget about is not the K through 12, let's get folks into this, into the meat of it and tell them that good design is a career. And not really the in college, because I feel like the in college is pretty supported just from professors and stuff for the most part. It's that I just graduated. Now, what the heck do I do now? And I just had a young lady who I spoke with just last week. She went to RISD. You know, RISD design school is like among the best. Yeah. It is the best, I think. And she's just having problems, A, finding herself as a designer and B, finding a job. And so, like, how can I help this young black woman out to get the stuff that she needs to start her career so that she can be another face in, in the in this industry to increase that 6% to 7 or 8 or 20? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm looking at when I'm trying to think about now and how do we get designers those tools they need to keep pushing forward and, you know, whether it's connecting to the right people or whatever the case may be. And I feel like AIJ has been powerful enough that they could do it. Like a partnership with Adobe, you would think we could, we could, you know, just give out of 10 free subscriptions to emerging designers of color and base it off of not a portfolio, but a, I don't know, a letter, have them write an essay, something that's not so based on design that it automatically cuts out a lot of people who are still trying to learn and grow. And so those are the things I'm thinking about. And that's kind of what's next for me is really trying to figure out a way to impact those emerging designers who feel left with no one to really support them. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, I know we're, we've spent a, a large amount of this time talking about AIGA and, and its effectiveness or ineffectiveness within the design community. But personally, I mean, your design journey in just the past five years has taken you to where you're at now doing culture lead and UX stuff for Microsoft. Where do you see yourself going after that? You ask me questions, I'm honestly in the process of trying to figure out. Um, and it, <laughs> it literally, I've been thinking about this really hard. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm at this intersection in my life where I have an opportunity to completely go into culture, in a sense, almost completely leave design and just work on culture in a way that helping pull more people into Microsoft, helping them define what it means from a company level with one of the CVPs and like really just do that. 
but part of that also feels a little like career suicide. It's like, no, like you've been working your butt off for like five years to get to where you are. Why the hell would you leave it now? Like you're just getting started. Mm. And so I met this intersection just from that level of like, what is it that I want to do there? But ultimately in five years, like I just, if I'm being completely like I said, I'm a great storyteller. I love speaking to people. I love just just presenting things and telling people about stuff. And so part of my action is like I want to actually I want to be another one of those people on that stage, honestly. Like I just I want to be another one of those people that if you're in the audience and you're an emerging designer or you see somebody's face on a website, you see something that looks like you. And that's my goal is to add more people to that list, because I know that that list was super short when I was in school. And it's gotten a little longer, but it's still not that long. And so if I can be added to that list, but not only be a list of just talking about it, but actually saying that this is the work that I'm doing and this is how you can help influence, then for me, that's like the best five-year outlook that I can have. Yeah, you're, like you said, you're 28 right now. Is that what you said? Yep. So you're kind of approaching, there's, there's, this, there's this astrological concept, you know, if you believe in astrology or not, but there's this like astrological concept of the, of the Saturn return, which is like mm-hmm. when you're something like you're astrologically, you like come back around to the time when you were born. It usually happens like between the ages of like 27 and 33, where you try to figure out, okay, what is my next step? It's interesting that it yeah. kind of comes near the end of your thirties, but like it comes at that time where you're trying to figure out like, what's the next thing? Like for me, when my Saturn return, I quit my job at AT&T. I was a senior designer quit my job and started my own studio. And then a few years later started this podcast and here I am not saying that you have to do that, but I mean, (laughs) I I feel like it's interesting that it's coming at this time now, especially, you know, on the heels of this post where you're trying to decide what's the next step for me. Where do I go from here? I think it's, you know, take the time that you need to think through that because that is, like you said, that's a big step to take in one direction or another. Like, do you want to stay and kind of try to change things from within? Or do you feel like you can step out into another career and do something different? You know, that's a that's a lot to think about. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's great and scary at the same time. So I, I'm just trying to ride it out and not make any rash decisions right about now. <laughs> that's, a, that's a smart move. That's a smart move. So just to, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? It's actually really easy. So... My website is barglevins.com. It's my last name. My email is my first name, Timothy at barglevins.com if you want to connect. And then on any kind of social media, it's typically you can just search my name. It's only one of two Timothy Barglevins in the entire world. It's me and my father, and I don't think he's on uh, half of them, so you'll see my face. But if you want to look, search for me specifically on like Twitter or Instagram or anything, is I think underscore I design. All right. Sounds good. Well, Timothy Bart Levins, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, someone actually, I'm not going to lie, someone in the task force, I'm not going to say who, someone in the task force <laughs> dropped me your link like a few days ago and I read it. It was like, you know, I contacted you like in the middle of the night, like you got to come on the show because we got to talk about this because I was reading it and it just, it hit me like, like straight to the heart because I know exactly what that feeling is like and what it is to kind of deal with the organization. And, you know, as a member or as an ex-member, as you are now, you know, I think it's important for anyone that's listening, aside from knowing your worth, is that if this is something that you're putting your time and your energy into, it is not 
a bad thing to question it. It is, not, mm-hmm. it is not a bad thing to demand more from something that you're putting that much of your time into. We certainly do it with media. We do it with our politicians. We do it with, with anything. And, you know, an organization like AIGA is not exempt from that. And so hopefully with what you're saying, they're not running from that criticism and actually doing the hard work of, you know, kind of looking into how they can change things. But I think outside of all of that, you know, one thing that you mentioned to me before we recorded was that you want people to know that in order to kind of make this industry truly a diverse and great thing, that organizational culture, intentional action and perpetual motion are all part of that. And certainly I think with the work that you're doing at Microsoft is helping with that organizational culture. I think sort of what you're doing now with this medium post is intentional action. And so now you're at the stage where you need to find out how you keep that going through perpetual motion. What do I do to not only influence the culture, but to also make sure that we're actively changing it as well. You know, there's only so much inspiration that can go around. Eventually you got to start putting your feet to the pavement and actually making things work. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Thank you too. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Timothy Bard Levins and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Timothy and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. Automate your marketing efforts, put your data to work, and watch the results roll in. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing domains. Not only do they offer free private domain registration, you can get your choice from hundreds of different domain extensions, you can connect your domains to your WordPress site, your Behance, or your Dribbble profile, even your LinkedIn profile, plus they have award-winning customer support. Ready to get started? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Just visit siteground.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and next, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show out by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Also, don't forget we're having our first live event here in Atlanta. It's going to be taking place next week, November 7th at 6.30 p.m. If you want to attend, send us an email at revisionpathlive at fb.com and we'll take it from there. I'll put the email down in the show notes also. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here at Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 per month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.